I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm the devil, but you can call me Toby. Can you hear me at the rack? Thank you for joining me for another episode of Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. And this week's conversation is with my old, old, well, he's not that old, but our relationship feels ancient. Since we were boys, really, we've known each other. My old friend, one of the greatest theatre directors ever, makes question marky inflection. I don't think I should make the question marky inflection. I'm going to try it again with uh, Yeah, You Better Believe It inflection. One of the greatest theatre directors ever, Sam Mendes. You may have also heard that he directs movies. He's um, a multiple Olivier Award, multiple Tony Award, Oscar-winning director. And I must have watched, oh, I don't know, 95% of the plays that he's ever directed, and they've been some of the greatest nights of my life in the theatre. So many unforgettable memories of Sam's productions over the years. It was incredibly moving to sit down and sift through all that and talk about our shared memories of his experience in this crazy old ancient art form that he's still so passionate about and so involved in trying to improve himself in. It was just really revelatory. And he told me things I'd never heard, things I had no idea about. And I can't wait to share them with you. Oh, now, we had such a good time talking that we didn't stop. So this podcast is going to be split into two episodes. This is part one, and part two will be hard on its heels. You're going to want to stick around for the end of part two, because if you want to know how Sam became the legend of Mendes, by which I mean, you know, this boy wonder who seemingly could do anything by sheer force of will at this crazy early age, you're going to want to find out how Sam coped with choosing between me and Tom Hollander, the brilliant actor Tom Hollander, for the part of Cyrano de Bergerac, one of the greatest ever written for a theatre actor, and what he said to console the person (laughs) who didn't get the part. Because I think it's incredibly informative about so much about what happened in Sam's career. And the reason you're going to want to wait till the end of the second part of this for that is that we tried to get to it in the first part, and then my batteries ran out. So (laughs) Sam, who was used to commanding budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars on Bond movies, had to go and rummage around in his toolkit to get me two double A's. So without further ado, here he is. Here's the boy wonder. Here's Sam. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr. Mendez and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. This is your beginner's call. How do we begin? <laughs> How do we begin? Let's begin like this. Do you, do you know that next year is our 35th anniversary? <laughs> <laughs> from the day of what, exactly? <laughs> from, uh, well, from, from Cyrano de Bergerac at the Marlowe yes, Society at Cambridge University. But the truth is, I saw you long before that. I had my eye on you long before did that. You? Yes, the first play you did, well, I think it's the first play you did at Cambridge, which must have been Death Watch yes. by Jean Genet. Jean Genet at the Trinity Hall Lecture, Lecture Theatre, well remembered. Yeah, and I thought, who's that big <laughs> unit? Plug. That big <laughs> ball of charisma down there <laughs> acting. I can't remember anything else about it. So just for some context, we're talking about 1980 
86, 87, maybe? 87, possibly, was that play. And then our 35th wedding anniversary, (laughs) which we're going to be, we're not actually married, though sometimes it does feel like (laughs) an old vicary married couple. It's going to be next year, 35 years since you came to, I must have auditioned for you, which I don't remember, because you came back, you just left university. Yes. And you came back one of your, or your first professional theatre job. That's right. First yeah. thing you were getting paid for. Yes. Was coming back to direct Cyrano de Bergerac yeah. by Edmund Roston for the Marlowe Society at Cambridge. And Marlowe Society was very particular, wasn't it? Because it had the advantage of you could employ a professional director. You did it in the arts theatre in Cambridge, which was a professional theatre. Yeah. And uh, that's it. It had some money. It had some cash, right? <laughs> I mean, famously, is it's the opportunity, supposedly, for right. young, thrusting Cambridge students to work with their first professional director. Right. But in a situation entirely uh, manufactured by the students, <laughs> you managed to, you know, sort of FIFA-style, insider-dealing yeah. way give the job to your mate, oh, yes. um, the Mars, me, who had only just left. But that, that does happen. And it was termed a professional because I was calling myself one because yes. I didn't have a job at that time. And yes, I got paid, although I can't remember how much. And I can't remember auditioning you or indeed anyone else. But no. I can remember having to do an interview for the job in front of all of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now, I remember because I was president of the Marlowe in the following year, in my last year. And that's an extraordinary thing about it, is that you, we snotty-nosed students, interview sometimes quite seasoned Mm. professional directors for this job, as though we know what (laughs) we're asking about. You, of course, you know, you've barely left the university. So that was sort of the time that we... 35 years next year. Yes. 35. God, that is terrifying. Fucking years. <laughs> um, I had high hopes of perhaps playing the title role. And I was a contemporary of great actor Tom Hollander. There were many uh, good actors at that time, interesting people who've gone on to uh, success in different walks of life. For example, that production contained the former Deputy Prime Minister, Nick mm-hmm. Clegg. Absolutely. Who else was in that production? Uh, who did we have? Well, it, it was designed by Tom Piper, yes, of course, who subsequently has been OBE'd for some of his yep. extraordinary design work, including the poppies at the Tower of London, which was the most extraordinary, yes. beautiful installation. Yes. Celebrating 100 years of, or marking 100 years, rather, of the Great War. Produced by Dame Pippa Harris. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, who, as most recent job, was producing my movie and, and who also was... <laughs> Been with me all these years, yes, and yes. I mean, it was a it was a remarkable bunch of people, as I suppose it often is, really generations at Cambridge. But I suppose the thing about that production was that we sort of jokingly refer to it as a professional production. Of course, I wasn't really a professional uh, theatre director at that time. However, I came out of that production feeling like I could be, mm. having sort of been pretty scattershot for three years at Cambridge. A bit of a licorice, all sorts, you know, trying everything. That I came out of that one thinking, oh, I think I just found something which might be a way forward, you know, and gave me the feeling that actually maybe I could direct professionally. Because I think if I was honest, up to that point, I had not felt that. I mean, we all talk a good game, you know, but for me, that was a turning point. I, I, I saw a lovely interview you did with Bridget Kendall back at your old college. One of the things you said in that was, if there was one production of yours you could go back in a time machine and see again, it would be Cyrano. Mm. And I wonder why. Well, I, I, my memory of it was a sort of immense joy, vibrancy, youth, a kind of freedom, mm. a mixture of finding the right form to release a play with the right bunch of people, even though it was pretty stressful. I remember Tom disappearing at the last minute because he couldn't remember his lines and he went and he went and was served chicken soup at home by his mother for two days while he just learned his lines. Because I think at some 
time in the final week of rehearsal, I said, listen, mate, you're going to be amazing, but you really do need to <laughs> put the book down. You know? Shit, I don't remember that. And he said, I know, you're right. And then I had two horrendous days where I tried to rehearse everything in the play that doesn't involve Cyrano, which is about five pages, I think. <laughs> they were very well rehearsed, those bits. Um, anyway, but it was stressful, but it, it just felt like an arrival. And of course, you know, this is the thing about theatre, as I'm sure we'll talk about. You can't hold on to it. It's very, very elusive. And you do have these hazy memories. And it was a production that wasn't particularly well recorded. You know, we couldn't video things in those days. And there's probably a few, a handful of blurry photos taken by Tom Piper, one of which is up on my wall in my office and appears to show a little bit like one of those photos that purports to show ghosts. And it's just a sort of blurry figure, you know, appears to show Nick Clegg. Uh, in a bowler hat and a guitar, uh, <laughs> but I couldn't be entirely sure. <laughs> well, we're slightly burying the lead, which is that I, I alluded earlier that I had some high hopes of getting the leading role because Tom and I had both been in the National Youth Theatre together before that. We'd known each other for quite a long time, since we were sort of 14. And because I, at that time, looked exactly the same age as I do now, which is to say 55, <laughs> and Tom, who was this tiny little blonde fluff ball looked about like a tiny sort of chick uh looked about six months old so i got all the grown-up parts in the national youth theater and tom didn't much to, much to his chagrin so he was in the year above me at cambridge and, and because we'd had a sort some sort of previous you know with with doing sort of professional style plays in London as snotty-nosed teenagers. I think we both sort of felt like it was a two-horse race. Mm. For well, it was. It was. I- I've told this story before. I do enjoy can you, it. Can you bear to hear I think it again? I, I, think I, need it to, I, I think it needs to be laid down for all eternity. <laughs> do you want to tell <laughs> in it this podcast? from your point of view? Yes, actually. Because you've you never have. No, I've never told this story. So... <laughs> <laughs> this point as though illustrating the essential differences between me and my guest coming here and only having the barest simplest uh, technical undertaking to achieve like putting out some mics hooking them up to this zoom recorder and pressing on the only thing i hadn't done was <laughs> change the batteries so Sam, who has been in charge of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of film equipment and has seen these things safely through to harbour, had to go and get me two AA batteries so that we could continue recording and telling the story. But here's the thing, you see. This is, this is what you learn about in theatre and film, is that the smallest things, the tiniest things, are often the things that derail you. Those people who have been who had the misfortune, for example, to be my assistant over the years will tell you that I can handle a big crisis. That's not a problem. But if my lunch is late, <laughs> it's much, much harder to try and navigate me <laughs> because uh, I get very hangry. But I remember when I was running the Donmar, a wonderful production of Endgame by Katie Mitchell with Alan Armstrong playing Hammond and yes. Stephen Delane. I saw it. Clothes. I remember yeah. that very well. Well, on the opening night of this production, Katie had rather brilliantly sort of not had Ham in a wheelchair, but in a sort of homemade throne with wheels that had clearly been constructed by Clove in order to move him around the room, because that's what he, he wants. And uh, the play started at an extraordinary opening speech by Delane, who appeared to be speaking, as is his wont, barely above a whisper and yet be heard by everybody. Mm. Uh, and he pushed Alan Armstrong on the thing, and the wheel fell off. And the entire play <laughs> spooled out in my mind. I thought, oh, my God, he he can't move him. I mean, the whole play is him pushing this fucker around <laughs> in a chair. And it's a static chair. What are they going to do? And Stephen Delane literally carried him for the entire – I mean, uh, Alan Armstrong, not an insubstantial presence, mm-hmm. plus a heavy chair. Anyway, he just moved him around. but it was absolute agony and all it was was one tiny little wheel coming off i also remember doing a movie called road to perdition we'd set up a shot with the sun setting and a boy 
driving a 1930s car with a dog in the back, way in the distance, and the crane came down. It's a massive crane. It was a summer setting. The boy had to pull up, get out of the car. Now, he couldn't drive, so there was a blind driver in the back who couldn't be visible. So he was lying on his back under the rear seat driving, this, this stuntman. Anyway, there's enough to say, as much as to say, a lot of moving parts. But the way the shot started was an, an old dude, whose name I have now forgotten, knocking a nail into the roof of the house in the foreground. And then the camera panned, as he saw the car, the camera panned up, caught the falling rays of the sun. And there in the distance was the boy. But the actor could not knock the nail into the roof. All he needed to do was knock this nail in. <laughs> Everything else was set up. And every time we did it, as the sun set lower and lower, he couldn't get the nail in and we had to reset. And um, eventually I, I gave up. The, the, the <laughs> shot isn't in the movie. But I do remember coming back to the camera tent to find that Conrad Hall, a great and esteemed cinematographer, now no longer with us, uh, had pretended to hang himself from the top <laughs> and was swinging <laughs> in front of my eyes as I came into the tent, <laughs> as if to say, it's all over. Anyway, my, my point being, tiny details. Yes. The double A batteries, yeah. you know. You need to get the details right. <laughs> well, this is interesting because accidents are such an interesting part of theatre, right? You just directed, not just, but a few years ago, directed The Ferryman, which opens with uh, there's a baby on stage in the second act, right? I was talking to Jez in another episode about this, the writer of the play, Jez Butterworth, and this idea of anything could happen to that baby. That baby could do anything at any point. The goose, you also had a live we goose. Had a goose we had a rabbit. Yes. We had a live flame. And there's this extraordinary thing. Declan Dolan has a brilliant quote that I was looking at for some reason the other day to do with my son's theatre studies course, about the quality of attention that comes in the theatre when we are activated through the power of feeling like anything could happen. He says it's the extraordinary difference between loving and being in love. (laughs) That extraordinary idea that, that if you are really genuinely feeling like we're all watching an emergency, we're all watching an accident potentially take place, that is the most alert state we can be in as an audience. Now, is that something that you wish to try to attain in your in your shows? That's a very good question. No, not for a while. I didn't have the courage to do it for probably 20, 25 years. And I learned a lot from the ferryman, actually. Yeah. I learned to embrace the chaos, that there is no way that we're going to get through three hours of this mammoth play with kids and animals and live flame and babies and God knows what else without there being always an accident. And sure enough, the goose shat all over the stage, and we had a plan B and a plan C. The rabbit, interestingly, John Hodgkinson, who was the magnificent actor who first played Tom Kettle uh, at the Royal Court in the West End, said, "Uh, I like the goose, but the rabbit's a wanker, he said. (laughs) And indeed, the rabbit really had it in for John, because it had to live in John's pocket for the first part of the first act of the play where it relieved itself all over the apples that he was supposed to be handing to the children in that one. So every night he would hand these glistening apples, fresh picked, to the expectant hands of these kids who then had to sort of pretend to look like they wanted to eat them whilst, while secretly rubbing them dry on their, their, their underclothes. Oh, yeah, it was, it was, but it was an absolute lesson in and how to embrace the sort of, you know, and that was very deliberate on Jez's part, I think. Yeah. Very deliberate, as was the fire. Caitlin and, and, and Quinn at the beginning of the play are playing cards. Uh, no, they're playing Connect Four. And, and they, there's a candle and, and a candle sets light to the lamp. And they debate whether they should put the lamp out and how. That discussion is sublimated to another more important conversation as to who would you rather be in a lifeboat with, the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin? And they talk about this while the lamp burns. And you could feel after about 10 seconds of this, are they, do they know the lamp? The audience thinking, do they know this lamp is burning? Are they going to put it out or carry on talking about the Rolling Stones? And very casually, gradually, Paddy Cons and I went and grabbed an old fire extinguisher and put out the light. But there's a kind of bond that's forged with the audience in that moment. Yeah. That sort of, oh, oh, it's completely, they're completely got it under control. 
and there's a sort of weird trust that happens. And I learned that from jazz, actually. And I think it's fair to say in, in my 20s and 30s working in the theatre, it would have been my nightmare to have those sorts of things happen because it was all about control, control of movement, control of stage picture. And chaos was something that I feared. It's one of the reasons why I think we had such a rough time. The first, I direct, first time I directed Cabaret, which was at the Donmar in 93, and we turned the theatre into the nightclub. Because it was chaos. I mean, you know, there were people, they were on stage, the audience were on stage. The lights came up on the nightclub and it was the audience scratching their asses and, you know, eating crisps. I mean, but it worked. And and it worked because we had a kind of spirit of chaos in the middle of it, who was Alan Cumming, who just was unafraid, totally unafraid of things happening differently every night. He didn't care. In fact, there's a good story there because... Alan and I, during rehearsals, I, I said, uh, during the interval, it would be amazing if you came out and danced with a couple of the uh, clientele. And he went, oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah, no problem. And that was that was the only conversation we had. And then it, it was such a chaotic technical process. We had so little time. We had no money. <laughs> and uh, suddenly got to the interval on the first preview and thought, Christ, I haven't, I haven't had that conversation with Alan about what he's going to do. And I ran around backstage. I said, are you going to come out? What are you going to do? He said, oh, no, don't worry. I've got it all planned. And he came out. And he did have it all planned. He had all the shtick. He danced with a man. He danced with a woman. He had the one-liners. Of course, you know, his history as a sort of stand-up yeah. and his work with Forbes when he was on the fringe playing, you know, Victor and Barry stood him in good stead. But that spirit, I learned from Alan and I learned from Jez, the courage and the freedom of just letting go. And that's a, a, real, a real lesson. And the theatre... It's a mugs game to try and make the things the same every night. You know, you, you, you can't do that. You have to have a certain amount of looseness. And the, the big debate is how much, you know. So Ferryman was full of that glorious, uncontrolled life force. Speaking of coming out to greet or be with the audience as a sort of extraneous part of the play, the pre-show, I remember you not being quite, <laughs> quite so keen on it back in, back in the days when I had left... <laughs> Drama school. It was at the RSC. I nearly did a spit take you, there. It was very I, good. I nearly did a spit take because I suddenly <laughs> remembered with awful clarity the pre-show of the Beggar's Opera at the RSC <laughs> sometime in the early 90s when all the cast, including Jonathan Cake and Nick Holder, for some reason, I yes. believe, because he accosted me yes. in the bookshop of yes. the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, Swan. Um, yeah, we were all sent out doing, you know, yeah. it was like it was like you were saying, I know Trevor Nunn had people coming out selling oranges before, you know, Nicholas Nickleby. But watch this. <laughs> We're not just going to be selling oranges. We're going to be trying yes. to engage the and I just thought these are not going to be cozy beggars. No. These are going to be in your face beggars. These are going to be in your bookshop beggars. And Nick Holder, who sort of did a magnificent double take when he saw it was you, a potential employer, <laughs> decided decided to double down in his magnificently brave way and pursued you into the bookshop, <laughs> where legend has it that at a certain point, as you'd sort of scurried around various aisles trying to get away from him, you turned to him and said, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Which point he went? Uh, he gulped and went back to being a beggar somewhere else. <laughs> I almost certainly know that to be an accurate rendition of the story. I remember very clearly. The only thing you've missed out is the the swear word I threw in. <laughs> I think it might have been a shorter sentence I uttered to Paul Nick, but he was trying to. He was really trying to fulfil, you know, John Caird's brief, which also included the notorious haphazard curtain call in which the actors suddenly hadn't been aware until that point that the audience were going to applaud and had to come running on looking surprised in a state of care. It was absolute mayhem. Simon Russell Beale tells a story about when they did, by the way, I'm very fond of John Caird and I saw him the other day at the opera, a magnificent production he did of Orfeo. But anyway, uh, this perhaps was not his finest hour. It was a production of <laughs> Money by Edward Bulwer-Lytton at oh, the yes. National Theatre. Yes. Yeah. Starring, amongst other people, Ollie Cotton and Simon Russell Beale. And at the beginning of the evening, Ollie Cotton was billeted to come out <laughs> and say to the audience, Money by Edward Bulwer-Lytton. And then the curtain would go up. And on the dress rehearsal, he walked out in front of a smattering of <laughs> National Theatre employees and said, Shit. By Edward Bulwer-Lytton. <laughs> At which point the entire company was paralytic with laughter <laughs> behind the curtain. <laughs> wow. Because they, they felt it hadn't been properly rehearsed. 
He was making a point. Wow. That is bold. <laughs> one of my favourite stories. That is bold. Yes, Matt. But you, know, just, uh, you can't take it for granted that the cast are always with you. <laughs> that, we, that, reminds me, that reminds me of Peter Brooks. <laughs> Peter Brooks' yes, dick. Don no, I think you're confusing it with Nicholas Craig's dick. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, yes. It's Peter Brooks' it. Was it ick? Uh, the ick. The I think ick. It was yes. uh, which, of course, would be magnificently resonant yeah. these days. The famous story is that up until really close to opening, the actors still hadn't actually rehearsed the piece. And uh, this sort of devised piece was still being devised. And Peter Brooks said to them all, the whole company, uh, they had to come out on stage and say the most terrifying thing they possibly could. And somebody said, you know, uh, genocide, uh, uh, the site of my mother's murder. You know, And John Gilger came out and said, we open a week on Thursday. <laughs> yes. Listen, I want to go back. I want to go right back. When was the first time you remember going to the theatre? Gosh, uh, I remember clearly, and I think the most intense experience, and possibly it will remain that, because uh, it was my first going to see Godspell with David Essex. Are you looking for me? No, no, I just want to get washed. Him, right? <laughs> um, very good. I should rather be baptized by you. That's Jeremy Irons. At the Roundhouse in probably 1974, maybe 73, wow. in which they served some sort of lentil soup and wine in the interval. It was very, very hippie, and there was incense burning, and it was incredibly atmospheric. And one of the actors, if you listen to the original cast album, uh, which I know you'll be rushing off to do when uh, when she sings, I can't remember who it was, Marty Webb possibly singing "Turn Back, O oh Man." She says uh, to a member of the audience, "You'll hear on the cast album. See you later, big boy." She says, and she said it to me. No, well, it was it was yes. I mean, I it was both embarrassing and thrilling of at the course. same time. Yeah. She was playing a sort of madame uh, with a feather boa. But I, I love the score of that show, and I still love it. I think Stephen Schwartz, you know, the songs are just fantastic. And I remember just the feeling it, it, it merged in my mind with a, a circus that I went to see with my mum in France, which I realise now is probably the Jerome Savary Grand Magic Circus. And both of them were right on the sort of cutting edge of rough theatre, sort of very influenced. You know, they're, they're basically circus rings, you know, right. dust and sawdust and sand and you know clown makeup and it was all so in my mind both of those things have sort of godspell and the circus both of them of a piece theatrically in a way yes they were both very of that time you know heavily influenced by uh the brook dream and and that the sort of freedom that that engendered in the alternative theater scene and so that was when i was a kid i'm sure i saw other plays you would have been about eight nine yeah eight or nine wow um and you imagine marty webb was saying it you imagine she was, no, no, she, she was you straight in the. Oh, eye, she came it. up to me in the audience no. and said, "Yes." She obviously would say it, and it got a laugh probably because I was a tiny little boy. But yes. it was, but no, no, she said it to me. Wow, yeah. yeah. And the follow spot swung past her and hit me. No, I remember that moment of being in the light. Oh my yeah. goodness, how extraordinary! And and then you then have to sort of go a couple of years later. The school talent competition. No, the school play. Excuse me. There were two things at Primrose Hill Junior School where I was a contemporary, I'm going to have a name drop again here, David Miliband was in my class and, um, and Zoe Heller, Sadie Frost. And uh, the play was something to do with uh, Egypt and Cleopatra. And I was playing Cleopatra. Yes. And I had two lines. And the second of those lines, I could not remember. It's as if the pause has continued to this day. It just seemed to go on forever. And I remember looking out at my friend sitting in the front row cross-legged on the floor of the assembly hall and just and they were mouthing something to me of course i stopped trying to think of what the line was and then i started trying to lip read and then it it all just went completely and i think the combination of loving the theater and not being able to do it was sort of forged in those moments really that feeling that i loved it but i I didn't have the courage or, or the confidence to step up on stage and do it myself. And that continued right through school. And, and I remember very vividly wanting desperately, partly because it involved meeting girls, of course, sure. um, but wanting desperately to audition for Fiddler on the Roof, which was our school musical. 
and standing outside the door of the assembly hall and just not having the balls to go inside. And I stood there for probably an hour listening to other people audition and I just couldn't do it. And I ended up working backstage in that production just to be around it and watch. And I remember watching things from the wings and sort of haunting the, uh, the you know, trying to be help them. I probably ended up building or painting some scenery or something. But there was definitely a block there. It was like, I couldn't take that step. So yeah, so that, so I think those early those early experiences were probably formative. And then from school, I got taken to see two things that changed changed the way I, I viewed theatre and, and introduced me to Shakespeare. One was Antony and Cleopatra at the RSC, which my dad took me to, which was at the other place. And we sat on the floor. In the old days, you could sit on cushions. And Helen Mirren and Michael Gambon were Cleopatra and Antony. And it yeah. was an absolutely extraordinary thing to watch them in such close proximity yes. for me. And I've barely ever been to the theatre. And then my mum took me to the Merchant of Venice with, I think, David Suchet. And I was studying for O level, and that was thrilling too. So I, I think those, all of that, you know, some of the sort of raw atmosphere of those early productions, and then the kind of um, the way in which they brought these texts to life later in, in my teenage years, you know, that th- those all had huge influences on me. So glad we're having this conversation. I never knew the story about Godspell and being in the spotlight, and then not being able to audition. Also, <laughs> I don't know if I can ever get the image of you as Cleopatra <laughs> now out of my head. I would have given an incredible amount. Well, you know how I, how much I esteem your acting. <laughs> I've always felt like you as a mimic and as a storyteller, th- there is no one I know who is better and more brilliantly precise and inventive you also have this lovely, it's this amazing sort of physical language. Of your, of your, you're very eloquent with your sort of hands. So I've often wondered when you're going to write and direct yourself in your own one-man play. <laughs> Terrible thought. <laughs> I, All about me. Yes, yes. Cogito t- ergo Sam. <laughs> It's <laughs> what I suggest. It's it's what I think I, that's unimprovable. As I think, you frankly. push yourself further and further towards towards being a creator, towards self parody. I think it's what you're trying. To, <laughs> yeah, you just written your first. I love the idea of you taking a show of just your just yourself yeah. to the Edinburgh Fringe, yeah. starting all over. Again. Uh, there was an actor whose name will go, will go uh, unmentioned, whose whose one man show was called All About Me. Yes. And I did think it was preposterous, but that's basically what one man shows are, isn't it? Um, but yes, this is <clears throat> this is really really fascinating. So you've just brilliantly described in those two seminal experiences that the, being in the spotlight. I'll see you later, big boy. <laughs> she didn't really know quite what she was saying no, there. She, she no would idea. see you later. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. Exactly. I might even have auditioned Marty Webb when I was in my 20s. <laughs> well, I never mentioned it. Is that true? I don't remember auditioning her. I remember loving her and thinking oh, she was great. God, but, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was crazy. Julie Covington was also in that cast. It was an amazing cast. Yeah. I mean, it was Jeremy Irons. But listen, Jeremy Irons and David Essex. I mean, that's, that says it all, doesn't it? True You've got too. the two. You know, you've got your Oscar-winning, yeah. you know, classical actor, and then you've got, you know, <laughs> every cloud's got a silver lining. Um, so it's by the time only you get to Winter's Tale, <laughs> here's the, here's what Cogito Ergo Sam is going to be. It's going to be you channeling Essex. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So by the time you get to university, these, these sort of twin urges of being fascinated by the theater these shows that you'd seen, that obviously, and particularly the Anthony Cleopatra up close, the circus, the sheer bravura of it, and feeling that you weren't quite equipped to stand on stage and do it, though you did act at university. Uh, I, I, no, I didn't really do it. I, I, I was in uh, my friend Tim Firth's comedy show. We did a, we did a comedy show around pubs and clubs. Did you? Of the Manchester Ship Canal in the yeah. summer of eighties, well, it was the Live Aid summer, so it would be eighty-five. Gosh, yeah, uh, and there is in fact a video of it somewhere, which Tim keeps threatening me: <laughs> release this video, <laughs> then you'll be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, I did do it. I didn't have the courage required, you know, right. and all the sort of stillness required. What if you were yeah. traumatized by not being able to remember your second line as Cleopatra? Well. Possibly. You may have a point, Dr. Freud. Yes. There's much we, we can put you on this couch and analyze, I think, <laughs> in the course of this discussion. So the, the urge to direct sounds like it was there. It was the obvious thing to do. Either you were either going to paint the make sets or you were going to want to be inside the room when you heard those people auditioning mm. and want to have some control of the artistic uh shape of that thing mm. exactly so the first thing you directed at university was well it's funny because you know i didn't go to university wanting to direct or even want to be part of the theater i remember going to the freshers fair and looking with pity on the actors queuing up at the really? you know the stalls for the adc and the mummers and all the rest of the university drama societies no i wanted to be a journalist i wanted to write i felt that, that was probably where i was going to end up but Sometime in my first term, my good friends Clive Priddle and Peter Mayhew Smith, who were both studying English with me at, at Peter House, which was my college, I was in their room and and Peter uh, pulled a play off the shelf and was reading a funny speech from it and said, "I'm I thinking maybe I will do this in the college lecture theatre, which is reopening as a theatre. Do you want to be in it?" And I said, in a sort of moment of um, a sort of light bulb moment, "No, you should be in it. I should direct it." And I don't really know why I said that in that moment, but I felt like that, no, no, that's what I should do. Because I knew I didn't want to act. I, I knew I didn't, that wasn't for me, or I was too frightened to, uh, a bit of both perhaps. And that's what happened. And then we got into rehearsals and Tim Firth, the person who, who you know, writer who wrote Calendar Girls, ended up uh, being an extremely successful playwright, was in it. And the first couple of days rehearsals, I remember thinking, oh no, I, I think I can do this. And I didn't really know why. I was just following my nose. And I, I loved it. You know, it made me ill with worry and sick with tension. And, you know, but I loved, uh, I loved controlling the rhythm of something. And I felt I knew how to make it funny. That, that was my first thing. Mm. It was all about comedy then. And a lot of the stuff that I'd watched as a kid on telly, you know, from Reggie Perrin to Faulty Towers to, I mean, it was the era of the great television comedies. You know, I still talk about Forty Towers now as the most extraordinary piece of craftsmanship. You know, in terms of the way that the farce is put together, and, and I even talk about it when I'm not talking about comedy. I mean, uh, when I directed the Ferryman, we, I talked a lot with Rob Howell about making sure that all the entrances to the space were not doors; they were openings. Oh. If you think of it, there's a, and I can tell you now that you yes, can't yes. see the back door, you can't see the entrance under the stairs, you can't see the entrance to, you can't see the entrance to the top of the stairs. People emerge. First of all, there's lots of people coming and going, and so doors are a nightmare. But also, you want it's a play that pivots on someone overhearing somebody else, and so you needed these dark spaces, you know. And and I suppose craft over the thirty years, forty years I've been doing it, that's something I've learned. But Faulty Towers is the great example of how to control entrances. I mean, I can tell you now, and you probably can tell me as well, you know, the entrance behind the counter yes. to the lounge, yes. the front door of the hotel, yes. the kitchen, and the dining room. Yes. But where are you watching from? You're watching from the fourth wall. So that is classic farce. That is a classic piece of beautifully constructed, effortless farce. But it seems effortless only because it's been, you know, machine tooled to within an inch of its life. 
it's a, really a work of genius. And there, there's a reason why there are only 12 episodes. Yeah. It's just really, really hard to sure. do that. You it know? costs them so much. It's like 12 individual plays by Fado or yeah. something. So I, I really felt that I knew how to control the rhythm of this thing and I began to understand. Uh, but I think that it wasn't until I left, like I, I said before, that I did Cyrano with you in it, um, that I found some sort of a style or some sort of a personality uh, that was mine. So then rewind however many years, uh, uh, or fast forward, I should say, to two Mondays ago, and you and I are sitting in the Minerva Theatre, Chichester, where you've taken me to see a preview of a play. And that was where our, our sort of friendship really was consolidated. My mum and dad lived in Chichester at the time in 1989 when you were there. And I turned to you as we took our seats in the auditorium. I said, I want, a, I want a speech and drama competition on this very stage. And I saw Harold Pinter, our great hero of both of ours, play the leading role in his play, The Hot House, and then endured one of the most excruciating glasses of champagne <laughs> of my life with him backstage afterwards while he waited for me to praise him in only the way that he had imagined in his head would be acceptable. <laughs> and you said, he said to me, I, I think I can beat that. He said, you may have forgotten that I was the first artistic director of this theatre and helped to design it. <laughs> I uh, actually came back that night and said, oh God, I said a terrible thing to Johnny tonight, to my wife, really? Ali. Yeah. Well, I felt it was a crushing thing to say to someone who was enjoying telling a nice no, story. No, well, I, and had, I, I had forgotten. I'd forgotten that. Because you see, when I remember you, it's ridiculous. You know, we've known each other so long that there are blank spots in my memory. That's also fucking age and COVID. But there's blank spots in my memory about our, the decades that we've spent doing shit together. And one of them is that I remember so clearly when there was a tent while the Minerva was being built and you doing translations mm. by Brian Friel in that tent mm. and that being an extraordinary thing for you. You were sort of interning or, you know, you were an assistant director at Chichester at the time and that felt like it was your sort of big break that people mm. saw and mm. thought, oh, this bloke's really got something. But I'd completely forgotten that you were the inaugural artistic director of the Minerva and you mustn't. There was nothing crushing about that at all. It was actually rather beautiful because then I remembered Yes, and you would keep coming, you know, to eat my mother's hot yeah. dinners while you were a sort of, you know, penniless, struggling a theater director just starting out and stealing my underwear. Now, there's a pair of Did pork, I? there's a pair of porky pig boxer shorts <laughs> out there that I'm still waiting to be returned. Anyway, the, the what I wanted to say was that person, that young kid who was doing your first season was Summer Folk by Maxim Gorky, right? And it was it was um, at the Minerva. And it was Cloud Nine by Carol Churchill with Tom Hollander, who was brilliant in it. And Love's Labor's Lost. That kid who was just starting off doing this stuff with this extraordinary, already by then, preternatural confidence, which everyone thought you possessed. That young man, you must be able to you would be able now to go back and tell a million things to about your craft, about directing in the theatre. But is there anything you feel like you've lost <laughs> from being that, that young boy? Uh, yeah, you lose all the time, don't you? You lose and you gain. I, I do think that I wouldn't want to go back and tell that young man anything because, of course, all the things, the leaps I took were as much to do with innocence and naivete right. as they were to do with confidence and skill you know you don't know how the many many the myriad ways in which you can fall when you're that age and i think if I, had i done that i might have been more hesitant but i think i remember very much david laveau who came to the minerva to direct cloud nine when i was and i i had just walked in and taken over the main house show because the director, Robin Phillips, had walked out. Right. Which was Dion Busco's London Assurance. That's right, with, right. with Paul Eddington. Yes. And, and uh, he said, you're a chancer, aren't you? He said, that's the way, I remember the, the phrase. And I went, yeah, I suppose I am. And I think there was a bit of me that was a chancer, you know, that it was just, he said it admiringly. It wasn't right. meant as a, right. but the tone he used was one of, you really have got brass balls. 
<laughs> how are you why are you doing that you know um, why aren't you just settling and doing the season of Minerva that's already a big thing and do you I think you're still a chancer I think less so now I I, I do feel like I've actually f- I have felt that way for many many years not a chancer but I think always looking for the next biggest leap the thing that you know the sculptor Robert Stella says you know I'm only interested in what I cannot do and I think that there was always that bit of me you know well I've not done that let me do that and I think that behind that was a genuine desire to learn and a genuine desire to expand and to test myself but there was also a fear of standing still there was also a fear of being seen that if I threw up enough smoke and mirrors perhaps nobody would actually look at me and I think that in the last five to ten years I think that has definitely begun to wane and I think I'm less frightened of people seeing me which is what's behind you know doing things like writing 1917 and 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 an empire of light this new movie or just working on new plays which I feel I can make a genuine contribution to like Lehman Trilogy or The Ferryman and not doing revivals, not doing big musicals, not doing the things that I feel were a little bit more perhaps hamster on a wheel than genuine creative discoveries or endeavours. And so, yeah, I think that, and I think a lot of theatre directing is both revealing and obfuscating at the same time. You know, you can hide behind the play always. You can say, well, it's not me. I'm just, I'm just animating Tennessee Williams or, you know, Shakespeare or Chekhov. Um, and you reveal yourself through the cracks of those experiences. And sometimes you, you don't, sometimes you don't want to. And gradually, you, you know, I, I feel I've worked out a little bit more who I am and, and, and what I have to say. When I was in my 20s and 30s, if someone had asked me for a bunch of advice for young directors, I don't really know what I would have said particularly, but it would have been something perhaps learnt or borrowed from somebody else. Now I would say, what have you got to say? Um, because I really feel that. But I don't think I had a great deal to say in my 20s and 30s. I had some stuff and there were some things that uh, that I think I look back on and, and remain really proud of. But a lot of stuff was just me because I thought, oh, that's an interesting play. There's a great actor. Let's put those two things together. That will work. And I still see that all over the place, people making things work. And I had a technical facility that allowed me to make a lot of things work. But making it work is not giving it a reason for being or having a fire underneath that entire experience that drives you to try and express something just beyond it, just out of reach, mm. just at the edges of what the piece has got, you know, or, or, or going into it with a very um, extreme focus, looking for one aspect of the piece. And I think that sometimes that's the best work. So, you know, I, I, I would say, yeah, that there was a chancer in my 20s and 30s, definitely was some... Um, uh, was was large in my my psychological makeup. But at the age of twenty four, you had two shows running concurrently in the West End. That production that you took over of London Assurance, which I remember to this day, Paul Eddington doing his physical jerks <laughs> in the morning. Yeah, I have to explain to anyone listening that his physical jerks in the morning were the smallest physical yes. movements he was capable yes. of. Because he was playing a, an aging Rue who was trying to woo a young 20-year-old Sarah Woodward. Uh, and he had, to, as he said to me in the tech, he said, I love this wig. <laughs> Which Sicilian nun do you think provided the hair for it? He had a jet black <laughs> wig and, and was strapped into his corset by his, by his manservant. On stage. On stage, yes. 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 Yeah, under great huffing and puffing. Yes. Um, the physical jerks, were they your invention or his? Do you remember? I, mean, I, you, I can't. It, it was a ballet of minimalism. Yes, it was. It was an old, as you say, roué, who, who would sort of limber up for the day with the minimum amount of physical yes. movement. But he did it with such beautiful, yeah. economical grace. Yes, he was a fantastic actor, Paul Eddington, really the most magnificent person. I remember him right at the end of the play. He had a, a speech to the audience. He had the title "Gentleman is something is out of reach." of any peasant and he gestured to a member of the front row with the tiniest gesture <laughs> and there was a got a huge laugh and then with another tiny gesture he apologized <laughs> just by turning oh, his yes. wrist and then he got another laugh and i remember thinking oh that's brilliant isn't it that yeah. is brilliant you know i didn't yeah. mean to call you a peasant you're probably not a peasant but i was trying to make a point but he managed to communicate this with just a movement yes. of his hand so he, he he really had a, a beautiful physical poetry yeah 
the way you imitated Paul Eddington's tiny gestures sort of completely evoked it. One of the, another reason for you to do your one-man show at Edinburgh. So when you were 24, that play was running concurrently with Cherry Orchard, with Judy Dench in it. And you are supposed to have famously said to her, she said, I'm got, I want to try doing something. And you said, well, you can try it like that, but it won't work. Is that, is, is that real or did you remember I, that? I, it, it was. It was real. I mean, I blanch. I, I, I blush. What, what, if you can blanch and blush at the same yes. time at the memory of what I was like then. But I, I had a way that I was determined to try and communicate. They should, this bunch of extraordinary and extremely experienced yeah. classical actors were going to do Chekhov, including not just Judy, but Ronald Pickup and Michael Goff yes. and Bernard Hill and Leslie Manville. I mean, it was, yes. a, you know, but I... I remember saying it to her, but I was trying, I, I remember this, and, and you see, this is behind the psychology of a director in a way, is that you're trying, it's like you're trying to write a line on a page, and you're halfway through it, and someone says, can I change the line, please? And what you want to say is, just complete the line, let's look at it, discuss it, and then we can write a totally different line, but don't change the line halfway through. Let's explore this idea, take it to its conclusion, and I'm talking about a, a scene within a scene, perhaps a page of dialogue, whatever. Let's explore this idea, complete it, look at it, hold it up to the light, turn it around, and then do something totally different. And I've always felt that. And what she was doing was saying, can I try something here? And I was saying, we haven't finished this line yet. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to explain why no, no. I was, but what I meant was, don't do that yet, because it won't work if we, we've started the scene in this way. By all means, in a minute, let's revisit the scene and do everything that you're imagining. But what came out was, well, you can do it like that, but it won't work. Right. And then I remember turning away from her, going back to my seat, turning back, and she was stood there, open mouth, looking at, excuse me, young man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Did you fall out over it? No, no. You, it's impossible to fall out with Judy Dench. But she gave me shit for it for years. And in right. fact, when I directed her in Skyfall as M, she couldn't wait. And the first time I offered her some direction, she said, well, I'll... I'll try it like that, but it won't work. <laughs> <laughs> and roared with laughter, you know. Well, but you see, it's partly what makes your mythos, you know, it is, is everybody loves to quote that when they talk about your beginnings because it seems you were already understanding the methodology that things need to be watched and examined before they can be retooled. Does that make sense? Listen, I've directed The Cherry Orchard since with a whole other set of actors, or equally wonderful. It's an impossibly elusive masterpiece. Yeah. I would do it again in a shot. I think it's the, one of the most extraordinary bottomless plays. Mm. And, and it, it, it enriches you and confounds you and challenges you. And it's just glorious. Uh, and we had five weeks, four and a half weeks. So I was also trying to put a show on. And there was that other muscle, which was, you know, I was never going to be the director, as far as I was concerned, that, John Gilgan was going to come forth and say, we have a week and a half to open. We haven't started rehearsing yet. I wanted to rehearse. I wanted to be on the floor. I wanted to make it practically. I wanted it to make physical sense. And then I could work on it with them. And I learned as I got older that I should be unashamed of that. Explain to the actors, this is what I'm going to do. You will have many opportunities to change it and for us to discuss it. But I need to see the physical life of the play. And understand the way it moves, as you know, because we could spend a week, three weeks sitting around a table here. And believe me, with Chekhov, you could spend months sitting around a table and, and, and it would be very, very enriching and fantastic. But when I did The Ferryman, for example, I said to the cast, I am going to stage this play in four days and follow my lead, and we will have much opportunity to change. But I have to follow my lead. I need to see whether the play makes sense physically. Now, that's a new play, and of course, it's full of you know, things that are going to change and, you know, you're going to adapt. So I, that was another set of reasons why I needed that. But that, that I think I, I, I always had that, but I was perhaps hiding it when I was younger. But weirdly, it was pretty prescriptive in the process. And then as you, as you begin to explore it, you can then make changes. But if you look at something like Lehman Trilogy, it's a dance. And I control every movement on that stage from beginning to end. Yet, Within that movement, there is immense freedom. And that is what I learned from, from my many years working with Shakespeare. Within the shape of language, within the extraordinarily 
prescriptive terms he gives you, there is a world of possibility. But you have to observe one before you find the other. Right. There is no point. You, if you just start treating Shakespeare as naturalistic texts, you drift around. It just doesn't work. You have to understand the rules. Well, once the rules are understood, there is a world of possibility within that. So for me, I think even then I was saying, give me a rigid framework. And if, if, if you accept that rigid framework, relatively rigid, you will find that, that within there is acting possibilities you haven't imagined yet. But I didn't have the means to describe it, nor did I have the experience. And so in the end, I think I was just groping in the dark, you know. You know, it, 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 Peter Stein has a, a, a great line, which is, you know, we're, we're all standing on each other's shoulders trying to reach the text. Mm. And it does sound a bit pretentious, a bit Nicholas Craig. But the truth is that that is what it feels like when you're working on something like Cherry Orchard or, or King Lear or, or, or Othello or whatever. And I, I felt that. But there's, there was another huge influence, so slightly tan- tangential, which is that when I was doing this Cherry Orchard, there was a very famous production of The Cherry Orchard in Berlin, directed by Peter Stein. Peter Stein had by that time become a bit of a hero of mine. Um, I'd seen his production of The Hairy Ape, which Thelma Holt had brought to the National in the late 80s. And I thought it was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen. Amazing, vast, complex, layered. And I was determined to go and um, see his Cherry Orchard in Berlin. And I knew the play like the back of my hand because I'd just directed it with Judi Dench. But when I went to Berlin... And I was welcomed by Peter. It was like I was a student again, you know. So I, I'd moved from, and I've always never had a problem with being the director of note of a West End show or a big show or a theatre, and then stepping into another room where I am absolutely the junior. I always knew I had lots to learn. I never pretended I knew it. I don't know where that came from, but that I'm very grateful for that as a young person that right. I that I didn't feel, and I still do. You know, I still go out and buy books about directors, and we're surrounded by them here. And I read about other directors. I love reading about methodology. I don't like reading criticism of the directors by some person and analyzing their films. I want to know how they do it. I want to know what's in their pockets when they come to set or how they rehearse or when, what time they start. Do they take a lunch break? I'm a real director nerd. I love the actual mechanics of the way people work. So for me, it was really interesting. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go and see this production, you know, this famous production. Let's see what it's made of. And it was gobsmackingly brilliant. It was jaw-droppingly in an entirely different league to anything I'd ever seen on any stage. It's impossible to explain how good it was. I mean, I could spend hours talking about it and I won't, but there was one particular moment in the first act when the family arrives back to the house after years of being away and the park-in, the local peasant landowner and the maid, Dunyasha, are waiting for the family. And they scurry out. They hear the family arrive. And they leave a crack open in the door to the nursery. And past this tiny crack travels the family. And they travel all past. Then the men, women, bags, servants carrying luggage, dogs, a nanny. And they disappear. And then you hear the sound of the birdsong out in the orchard. And then you hear them coming back again. And they pass by the door again. And you watch them through this crack. And then one of them says, ah! the nursery and pushes the door open and they walk into this room. And I'm telling you, the hairs were on the back of my, you could not imagine Mm. the thrill of them arriving into this room. And that crack in the door, that was a huge moment of understanding for me. Mm. The economy of means, the ability for a stage director or indeed later in my career, movie director, to make you look at a tight, a square inch of stage space and put so much focus and attention, so much story, so much narrative into this tiny space. I found it, the whole thing, and it's just an absolute lesson in stagecraft and in and how to direct and in what directing is. And what directing is, my goodness, I just have loved Sam's revelations of what he thinks directing is, how his mind works when it comes to trying to direct a piece of theatre. It's given me so many insights into this person that I really thought I knew so well and, and memories of his past that I'd never heard of about him embracing Jez Butterworth's chaos, the ferryman's <laughs> glistening apples, how 
Yes, he would indeed make sure that the theatre world would see him later, big boy, that little nine-year-old, in the spotlight, both terrified and thrilled. And then the little boy not being able to go into the audition, letting other people go in front of him while he listened to people auditioning and having fun and laughing in the room for Fiddler on the Roof and not plucking up the courage to go to that audition. I mean, if you ever wanted to know how a person becomes a person, um, there were so many insights in this conversation, I thought, before we even got to that final revelation about about seeing the crack in the door to the nursery and Peter Stein's cherry orchard. That rain made the hairs rise on my neck, just like it did the 24-year-old Sam when he was watching it. Please join me for the second part of the chat in a separate episode, which is coming out right away. He talks about Nicole Kidman, the Donmar Warehouse, how it feels being everyone's dad in a theatre, the loneliness of the director, and what Natasha Richardson thought was his secret weapon. Not to mention the end of that Cyrano de Bergerac anecdote, finally. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and funny. That's stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, 